Hi, and welcome to Spilling Chai. I'm your host, Anusha Hussain. You may know me as the Bangladeshi American cable news commentator who debates toxic masculinity with Tucker Carlson on Fox News. Or maybe you've read my articles on CNN about toxic white supremacy. While I may be a pro at giving my opinion and analysis on the headlines, something you don't get to hear me do is ask the questions and talk about something other than the news. And that's what I'm all about doing right now because between coronavirus, a global lockdown, and social isolation, my Persian cats and I need a break. This podcast, Spilling Chai, is about conversations. I want to feel inspired. And radio is such a great medium to have really in-depth conversations and to take the time to have them. In this show, I'm going to be talking to brilliant writers, passionate activists, and amazing artists. And I want you to join us. This podcast is also a PSA on behalf of all brown people that in most of Asia and the Middle East, chai is not a latte. Instead, it's the best kind of tea. And on this podcast, we are all about spilling it. So pour yourself a cup and pull up a seat. So hello, everyone. Welcome to episode four of Spilling Chai, coming to you live from Washington, D.C. on yet another sunny and stunning spring day. I cannot believe we are already on the fourth episode of this podcast. Thank you guys for making me feel so welcome in this new space and for spilling chai with us. So when I first decided I was going to do a podcast, the only thing I was really sure about before I even knew how to work a podcast app was that I wanted this show to feature the voices of really strong women of color. Our perspectives, our expertise, our stories, our lives, and our work. And today's guest not only epitomizes what I mean when I say, quote, strong women of color, but she is also someone who, when I first came across her work early in my career, made a huge impact on me. I am talking about Melody Moetzi. Melody is an Iranian-American writer, speaker, professor, attorney, and award-winning author. Her books include War on Error, Real Stories of American Muslims, and Haldol and Hyacinths, A Bipolar Life, which earned critical acclaim and broke new ground as the first mainstream mental health memoir by a Muslim or Middle Easterner. Her latest book, The Rumi Prescription and How an Ancient Mystic Poet Changed My Modern Manic Life, is out now and topping bestseller lists as we speak. The first time I came to know of Melody's work was back during the Iranian uh, protests of 2009, which was known as the Green Revolution. And the world was really stunned as these images came pouring out of Iran, not only of Iranians protesting, which in itself was a big deal, but more so that it was Iranian women who were on the front lines of these protests, organizing them and leading them. It was so exhilarating to watch. And as a young Muslim feminist myself at the time, I felt like Iranian women in that instant just shattered all the negative and weak stereotypes of Muslim and Middle Eastern women as being passive and politically apathetic, oppressed. It was so badass. At the time, I had already just met my now Persian husband, and the both of us were following the news so closely, going to protests in and around D.C. And one day we were watching CNN, and Don Lemon had on this Iranian-American author and activist, and seeing her on TV blew my mind. I had no idea before then that Muslim women could be on CNN and not be talking about life behind the veil or lifting the veil or <laughs> some stereotypical image like that. But there was Melody. 
So my husband and I reached out to her on Facebook almost 11 years ago, and she has been a mentor, a supporter, and such an amazing inspiration to me ever since. I'm so honored to have Melody Moetzi as a guest on Spilling Chai. <laughs> Welcome and salam, Melody June. Salam alaikum. How are you doing, Anastasian? Thanks so much for having me. <laughs> I'm doing good. Thank you so much for coming on and joining us today. So when we first started talking like over a decade ago, I feel like most of the writing and advocacy work around Muslim Americans was really to explain how all Muslims basically weren't terrorists. I mean, there was a period where the negative stereotypes we had to deal with at one point really for years, especially after 9-11, were terrible. I mean, horrible. So what do you think? Do you think the image of Muslims, especially Muslim women, has generally evolved in the U.S.? Am I becoming delusional because of corona? So I'm a professor and I teach creative writing and I have so much hope and faith <laughs> in this new generation. I think oh, the okay. generation that's going out right now is literally like having its last breath in some cases. And that's an incredibly impressively racist breath. And we're all a part of it. Mm -hmm. it's, and I just feel that there is so much hope in this new generation. They are different people. And I teach in yeah. a Southern public university in coastal North Carolina. So wow. I certainly have conservative students as well, but they are not their grandfather's grandmother's conservative. Their attitudes are very different. They are progressive in so many ways that we in my generation, even growing up, we would call progressive, but in their generation, they just call it human rights, right? Like, yes. For being uh, same-sex marriage or something. For believing you're the same as yeah, me. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Like just basic yeah. equality. They're, you know, so their opinions are very varied. That's giving me a lot of hope. So I do think it's changing and I think we're changing too. You know, I started off very much trying to fight this stereotype of we are, and to literally my first book, the whole point of it was to say, we are not terrorists. That said, yes, <laughs> I mean, that was, the, that was the whole premise of it. Like me, and it was about, yeah, war of yeah exactly. So it was about all these young Muslim Americans who I wanted to profile and show how diverse we were, how we were straight and gay and brown and black and white and like just all different kinds and all different backgrounds. And we were all American and also all Muslim. And that was the only premise of that book. And I, Remember, I initially tried to sell that book with an agent to these big trade New York presses, two of whom came back and said to my agent, this is a great book, like we would like to publish it, but first she needs to interview a terrorist. No, yeah, all no, the assumptions oh baked into that. And then the fact that my agent at the time, who is absolutely no longer my agent and no longer on earth, but um, she was a very old woman, uh, she's no longer with us, but she told me something that I will never forget that was both true and like horrifyingly offensive at the same time, which was not only did she want me to take one of these deals, she also said, and not only did she also assume that I knew a terrorist interview, but then she said, <laughs> it would be really beneficial for your career if you converted to Christianity. No. Yeah, and again, she was right though. Like oh you've goodness. seen it, you know. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like they do. Really yes. Oh God. Really better than mine. There's no doubt about. Yeah. Well, like, they, yeah, they get better. Out. They get better speaking fees. Right. But also, do they have any soul? <laughs> <laughs> that is terrible. Well, you know, people have told me that it would be a lot better if I was blonde. You know, working in TV. So I get it. But then one day when I was telling somebody about it, somebody in my family, actually, and they went, well, why don't you go blonde? And I was like, what? Kind of defeats the purpose of my life. But OK. 
And then Anusha became, I don't know, Annabelle. Okay, so you didn't become Christian. You didn't take her advice. I did not. And I did a mutual rescission of contact (laughs) with her. And I found an amazing agent who represents primarily minoritized authors. And she sold my second and third books. So I was very lucky to find somebody in this industry who was a woman of color representing other women of color, which is not easy to find. Wow. Not easy to find. So your latest book... The Rumi Prescription, How an Ancient Mystic Poet Changed My Modern Manic Life. It's such a soothing read, Melody. And in many ways, it is the perfect book for these times, right? Because Rumi's poetry is so calming, it's so centering, and it transports you. And reading your book, I wanted to know, what are the Rumi verses that are giving you the most comfort right now? Well, the one in general that has always given me the most comfort, the one that I recite to myself when I'm feeling less than in any situation is the Farsi is Zar Talab Gashti Khod Aval Zar Budi, which means, and my translation of it is, you went out in search of gold far and wide, but all along you were gold. Gold on the inside. inside. So that gold on the inside, trying to just remember that like everything you already have within you, everything you need, is there. You already have it. You're not like, which is, you know, not easy when you're trying to promote a book being like, you don't need this or anything else to make you whole. You are all, yes, you are gold on the inside. Exactly. And I believe that. I'm not not so great at marketing, but I genuinely believe like books have changed my life. So my hope is that people find comfort in it and are reminded because the thing about human beings is we're just so forgetful, myself included. And from one minute to the next, I can know that I'm gold on the inside, but I can forget it really, really quickly. And that is something that hopefully this book will be a reminder for others. And quite honestly, mainly it's a reminder for me, for where I come from and that I come from gold. And obviously we all do, but going back to my own personal literary history and heritage was really important to me. So I found a lot of comfort in that part of it as well. Your parents were already so proud of you. I mean, have you just made for any other Iranian children out there, especially first and second generation children, have you just ruined the game for them? I mean, can anybody have a daughter better than Melody? Okay, and then you write this amazing book, which is basically in the midst of your love affair with Rumi, really a, a love letter, I feel like, to your father. Yeah, well, this is to my father, but also to the Iranian American kids of my generation. This is a love letter because. We have this huge gap in communication between our extraordinary parents who left everything to give us a better life here. And they have this rich history that we all sort of took for granted and don't fully understand. And I thought, you know, there's a way to do this. There's a way to approach it. We don't have to keep going to these old white men who don't speak Farsi and supposedly translate Rumi. We can translate it for ourselves because if the old white guy who doesn't even speak Farsi can translate this poetry. Who's to say that I can't? So I realize... Yeah, no offense to Coleman Bart. But for real. <laughs> I think he's an extraordinary poet. That's how I first discovered Rumi. Yeah, and that's how most people yeah. first discovered him. And I'm grateful to him because if it weren't for him, I wouldn't have written this book because yeah. this poetry is very intense and it's very complicated. So having my father to be able to guide me through it was everything. All yeah. due respect to Coleman Barks. I, I, a lot of people consider it misappropriation what he's done. I do not. I'm grateful for it. And I think it has brought a whole lot of people to Rumi who otherwise would not have come to Rumi. So for that, I'm deeply grateful. I just wish that the platform were wider and that most 
revered people in the United States who write about Rumi were, you know, not necessarily me, but people like Omid Safi, who yeah, is actually people Iranian, from who exactly Farsi, who's a scholar yeah. of Rumi. Like, why isn't a Omid story Safi of our lives? The yeah, Pullman Barks, and that's what I don't. I don't understand. Exactly. Javad Mojadidi, who did this translation, is still in the process of doing a translation of the Masnavi that is brilliant. I mean, so beautiful. Mm-hmm. And that is what I wish people would read. Yeah. If they were trying to read uh-huh. more about Rumi. Of course, after they read my book. But then they would go. Yes. After they pick up your book. But you know what? You are so right. It's like that with a lot of South Asian writers as well. It's like, you know, when the British colonized us, I mean, the first guy to declare like Hindi the official language of India, even though we had like hundreds and hundreds of dialects and languages, was this guy named N.B. Hallhead. And Tagore, you know, his relationship and his friendship with uh, William Butler Yeats, you know, eventually led him to get the Nobel Prize of Literature. So it's always like we always had these white kind of like agents. But I guess that's who introduced them to their market almost. But I feel like in January when everything was going on with Iran again and tensions were getting heightened between the U.S. and Iran, all of a sudden, all the Iranian-American experts disappeared and all these white guys were back on air. And I was like, really? Even in 2020, these white guys are telling us about like the Islamic revolution? Like, I just don't believe it. I have so many friends who could have been like these amazing experts. Uh, There's so many of us, so many of us who could do it. Yeah, you, me, hello. Maybe this is a call for our own speakers agency or contributors agency to do that, but... It is. It's, it's a little. I wonder. A little horrifying. Oh, I have so many stories. That is a whole podcast series. But you have been so. I love that you said that. Though. You're so right. You have been so open, and something I really, really admire about you. So open about your mental health struggles with bipolar disorder, and you've been such a strong advocate for the Iranian American community and more. You describe a manic episode that you have in the book that led to your psychiatric hospitalization. And you write, there is perhaps no greater blow to the ego than losing one's mind. And having lost mine so completely, I no longer had any sense of a distinct self separate from creator or creation. However, clumsily or unwittingly, I had stumbled into the land of mystics. How did that experience make you start turning to ancient Persian poetry? You know, part of that experience was also losing the ability to read, which is my identity. Yes, you said that. I was struck illiterate for a few days, basically. You became illiterate, yeah. Yeah. What happened was if I opened a book, it was like the letters would fly all over the place. I don't know if you call that inability. I couldn't read books. And that is so much a part of my identity as a lawyer, as a writer. Like, you'd think that would make me lose everything like because it's such a big part of my identity but it didn't because of this beautiful mystical experience I had had there was a part of it that was still terrifying but I'd also I knew everything was going to be okay in a way I never have before I knew everything was the way that it should be I knew that I was deeply connected to every other living being on this planet that I was invested in every other living being in this planet in a way that I never knew before, because it's not something you know intellectually, it's something you have to feel spiritually. And that beautiful Mm -hmm. mystical experience was what allowed me to feel that. But at the same time, because unlike regular mystics, who actually do the charity and the fast, I mean, I do charity, but like, I wasn't doing the fasting and the, all the other things that the 
prayers. Yeah, all the other five pillars. A mystical experience. Yeah, like I hadn't done pilgrimage. I hadn't done all the things you would do to prepare for such an experience. Most most importantly, bringing a guide so you don't fall into the abyss and not find a way out. I had no guide or anything. So because of that, I got burned on the way down. And despite being able to catch a glimpse of this ecstasy, basically on the way down, I quickly transformed into clinical mania. And part of what was important for me to say in this book is that both clinical psychiatric conditions, clinical mania, and psychosis even can coincide with these other mystical states. And that doesn't diminish the value of either one of them. I believe in taking medication. I still take medication. I am Mm -hmm. grateful for it. But I also believe that we need to stop devaluing people's faith experiences, which is something that the American medical community has done to me consistently over and over again, partly because I'm Muslim, but also I'm not Mm -hmm. the only one. Even I have Christian friends and allies who the same thing has happened to them, that their faith has been disparaged. And Jewish Keeping and science and religion. Like, yeah. yeah. Was that scary? Were you scared? There were moments of that. But again, I think what the scariest part for me of the whole experience was being put in solitary confinement. And when I say that, it's worth saying that we use solitary confinement more in this country than any other country on the planet. We use it as both treatment mm-hmm. and punishment, despite the fact that it's been proven to not only not work for either, but actually induce symptoms so of mental harmful. illness yeah. in people who don't already have it. Oh, oh my goodness. So that, that was the terrifying part of it's it. It's terrifying. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Uh, on releasing the roomie gut. I need to have you back. I already know I have to have you back. I'm going to do like a special series on just Melody, Melody's wisdom, Melody talking, the Melody prescription. I was going through your Twitter timeline and I love that on releasing the roomie prescription, you tweeted, I love this. I spent five years writing this book, never planned for a release amid a global pandemic. Crap timing for me, but perfect for Rumi. I hope you find comfort here. Forget your plans and embrace uncertainty. Only then will you find stability. As beautiful as that tweet was, what was it like? What has it been like to release a book during coronavirus? And how have you had to adapt? I mean, not like everything has gone virtual. So are you having book tours online? Okay, for one, it sucked. And I want to embrace the suck of it. Like, I want to say it really. And you know what's hard is all of us, and I think of my students who aren't having commencement. Like, all of us are like, people are dying. We understand. Horrible things are happening. Always worse for somebody else. Like, there are other people in much worse circumstances than I am for sure. But that doesn't mean we don't have the right to grieve our own disappointments. And I feel like some people are in a position where they're just like, oh, I, I can't feel bad about this big disappointment. But what Rumi teaches is not to run away from your emotions. So if you're feeling that, like to feel it 100% and not judge yourself for it, but allow yourself to feel it because that's the only way to get through the emotion. That said, I'm trying to apply that to my life. And there's like half the, I mean, like I started eating Oreos. I don't eat Oreos, you know, like this isn't (laughs) normal time this isn't me we bought although I, i'm proud of myself for the last grocery run i told my husband i was like no oreos this time let's evolve so what are you working on currently what is making you want to spill the chai i mean it took you five years to write this book you're adapting to your book tour in the age of corona 
is that your main focus now? You're making sure your baby is safe out in the world? Like I said, I'm a professor, so I'm teaching classes on Zoom. So I'm doing that. But I'm also working on, I just started being able to write again. I was having trouble reading, let alone writing. And I just started an essay about trauma-informed classrooms, which is like a pet project of mine as somebody who teaches creative nonfiction my students come in and write about like the worst trauma that has ever happened to them in their lives and I am not trained to actually respond to more than the craft of that right like I'm supposed to respond as a writer being like you know I don't know if a comma here is appropriate and I'm like this is you know I need to be better trained (laughs) at this because we shouldn't just be talking about the commas like I said I have so much hope in this new generation and in my students in general I feel like they deserve so much better but they've been given such a horrible hand and what they've done with it is extraordinary and so impressive like I know there's so many pejoratives that people use for millennials that I've forgotten all of them but there's so many of them and they have just had such a hard time and they're so attuned to things that we weren't even thinking about or I wasn't even thinking about at their age and they've certainly taught me at least as much as I've taught them in this experience so yeah fantastic well what do the general makeup of your classes look like are they mostly women men good mix more white Americans more uh, diversity how were the makeups of your class like I said, I teach at uh, UNC Wilmington. In North Carolina, yeah. It's UNCW, and it's a great university. We're the Seahawks. Go Seahawks. But it's also <laughs> known as UNC White, and um, I didn't make that up. Uh, so <laughs> is... I feel you. I went to UVA, so yeah, there's only so. But I would say UVA has Are you probably the university most... than UNCW. Yeah, we definitely had like a total Persian mafia situation going on at UVA. <laughs> Okay, so it's only so diverse that it can be. But how amazing that you were there. You were there teaching this class. So The first year I taught here, I was the only woman of color in our department. But now there's one other woman of color. And I will tell you the difference it makes. It's not quantifiable. But the level of my comfort in the department, and it's not like I was antagonistic toward anyone in the department. I have some really dear friends in the department. But the difference of just having one other woman of color in the department changed so much uh-huh. for me. And I didn't think it would. You know what I mean? I mean, so you have somebody else that totally like gets just somebody to even make eye contact with or roll your eyes at. Like, yeah, it's, it's like having a friend at the office that totally gets you. So, Melody, I cannot thank you enough. I'm so excited for my listeners to listen to this podcast. And thank you so much for being our guest today and for spilling chai with us. All this talk of Rumi has me thinking about uh, my major Sufi poetry phase in college when I basically discovered Coleman Barks' uh, translations of Rumi and applied all of his amazing poems, you know, to overanalyze my overactive romantic uh, imagination. But a few lines of Rumi's have uh, always stayed with me, and one of them is, let yourself be drawn by the stronger pull of what you really love. And honestly, it has stayed with me and guides me to this day. I encourage all of you to rush and get your copy of Melody Moetzi's The Rumi Prescription, How an Ancient Mystic Poet Changed My Modern Manic Life, and also check out her other books, especially Haldol and Hyacinth's My Bipolar Life. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Spilling Chai Podcast. If you have something about the show or need something about the show and you can't find it, make sure you also check out our website, SpillingChai.com. 
Stay healthy, stay safe, my dear listeners, and remember to stay at least six feet apart. Until next time, let's keep brewing the chai. Thank you.